As we continue on through the Gospel of Mark this morning, we turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Listen now for God's word to you. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want for me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I don't know where you fall in the birth order in your family, I don't know if you're an only child, I don't know if you're the youngest, if you're in the middle, or if you're like me, you're the oldest child. How many oldest children do we have in here? Yes, we oldest children have it really hard, don't we? Yeah, Yeah, right? Yeah, we got to be the overly responsible ones for our much less conscientious younger siblings, right? We have, yeah, 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 we got to, we get told we have to be an example for them, as my parents and grandparents told me, we have it the hardest of anyone in the birth order, we Oldest children are such persecuted martyrs, aren't we? Uh, Or we just blaze the trail. There are distinct advantages and privileges, though, of being the oldest child, though. Uh, For example, you get everything brand new. There are no hand-me-downs for you. I remember there's this pic... Huh? Say that again? You get them, yes. Must have a youngest child back there. Um... We have, we, there's a picture my parents have of me when I'm like three or four years old, surrounded on all sides by stuffed animals, brand new stuffed animals. I was also the first grandchild on my mom's side, so I was especially spoiled. Um, and I remember that my, my siblings got those stuffed animals when I was done using them. They got them as hand-me-downs. But one of the things I really loved about being the oldest child was that when mom and dad went out for the evening, I got to be in charge. I was the babysitter, and I let that power go to my head. Um, I lorded it over my siblings. I ruled over them. And so when my parents came home, it was like the UN had arrived to talk about all the things that their older brother had done, to finally sort out the mess that I had created with my overpowering everybody else. So, um, but by far the best, the thing I loved the most about being the oldest child was the fact that whenever we got in the car and only one parent was driving. I got to sit in the front seat. I had shotgun for life. Um, my other siblings, my other three siblings, had to climb over the, uh, the seats of the minivan, scrunch in the back, but I got to sit in the front like some sort of prince. Uh, it was my privilege. It was my position of, of honor, and 
And the funny thing is, is even as I've gotten older, um, and we get in the car with mom or dad, and there's a couple of the siblings with us, I still get to sit in the front seat. We're all adults now. My brother is bigger than I am. Uh, but I still get to sit in the front seat. It is my position, my place of honor and privilege. We find James and John, the sons of Zebedee this morning, seeking their positions, their places of privilege and power and honor this morning. Uh, James and John, brothers, uh, so one of them has to be the oldest, but they strike me both as having a mindset of being the oldest sibling with their ideas of entitlement, their their ideas of they should have the best places in Jesus' kingdom. They, they come to Jesus with this bold and audacious request. They say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Uh, one scholar says it's like they're kids in a candy store just asking for what they want. And um, maybe the ancient form of, hey, Jesus, we want you to do a favor for us. We want you, when you come into your glory, to allow us to sit on your right and your left hand. Now, of course, this is not simply a literal request. They're not just asking for the chairs on Jesus' right and left hand. They're, they're asking for the positions of power and honor. The, in the ancient world, those who sat on the right and the left hand were those who were co-rulers with the king or, or whoever was in charge. They want their positions of power and privilege. This is a bold request, and I think it's made bolder still by the, by the situation, location in which they make this request. It's not like they're having a private meeting with Jesus. It's not like they send him an email and say, hey, are you, are you free during your normal office hours? They ask this question in front of all of the other disciples, in front of everybody else. It's like they're saying to Jesus, we know you love everybody equally, but you love us best, right? Wink, wink. And bolder even still is the fact that Jesus has already predicted the fact that he is going to Jerusalem to give up his life, to be crucified, to suffer, to die at the hands of the, the powers that be. And he's made this prediction not once, not twice, but now he has made this prediction three times. And each time Jesus makes this prediction, there is this enormous, massive misunderstanding on the part of the disciples. But this is a staple of Mark's gospel. I've talked about this, I've mentioned this a few times, that, that there is this downward descent on the part of the disciples when it comes to their understanding of who Jesus is. And so every time Jesus makes a prediction of his going to Jerusalem to confront the powers of, of toxic religion and corrupt politics... The disciples fail to understand. So last week, we heard that first prediction, and, and immediately Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, tells him how wrong he is. And then after the, the second one, after the second prediction, the disciples immediately begin to argue among themselves about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. You want an example of not listening to Jesus. Immediately after he tells you he's going to die, starting to argue among yourselves who is the greatest, who is the best, who is the most important. And then now, after this third prediction, James and John come and make this request of Jesus to sit at his right and his left hand. The thing is, Jesus doesn't deny that these positions exist alongside of him. The great irony, though, is that those who will sit at Jesus' right and left hand when Jesus is revealed in his glory will be the two criminals on the cross hanging next to him. 
Perhaps if James and John had understood that, they would not have been so bold in their request. Jesus says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to to walk the path that I walk? And, And James and John are impulsive. They immediately answer, yes, we are. James and John don't really know what they're asking for. And the other ten disciples watching this whole scene unfold get indignant. They're upset with James and John. And they're not upset because they've understood what Jesus is talking about. They're upset because James and John beat them to the punch. That if perhaps if they had been more bold, if they had been more assertive, they could have made that request of of Jesus and they could have gotten the positions of power like they wanted the whole company of disciples has misunderstood what Jesus is all about, where Jesus' life is headed. They've misunderstood the power dynamics, the power structures that he has come to bring about. And remember, too, that in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are not just the 12 that lived 2,000 years ago. They are symbolic and representative of the church throughout all times and in all places. So when we read about the disciples, we're reading also about ourselves and the ways that we in our own lives have desired power and status, the ways that we have sought upward mobility in our own lives. Martin Luther King Jr., in what turned out to be his final sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church, called this the the drum major instinct. That we all have this drum major instinct. We all have this desire to be out front leading the parade. We all have this desire to be recognized for the things that we do. And he says that, It says that this is something that's intrinsic to us, that it's the first cry that we make as newborns is a cry for attention. And as we get older, as we become toddlers and children, we are still egocentric. And if you don't believe me, I have a toddler you can talk to. Um, And then even as we become adults, we still have this drum major instinct, this desire, this craving for power and status and privilege. King says it's why we join things because it fulfills this desire for recognition. It's why advertising works so well, that if you buy the right car, if you wear the right clothes, if you buy the right jewelry or the right TV, then it gives you that, 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 that thing you desire, that thing that you crave. And even moving into the modern world, we can see this, how this has kind of transitioned and shifted with what's now known as social media influencers. How many of you have heard of social media influencers? So sometimes they're celebrities, other times they're just ordinary people who have gone viral for something, they have a special skill, or they've gone viral for making some silly video or something like that. And they gain a lot of followers on their social media platform. And the more followers they gain, they have the opportunity to do advertisements, they also can monetize their social media platforms, and then they can quit their jobs and start making social media content full-time. It is a very lucrative way to make money, um, the top-grossing YouTube channel right now is a guy who goes by the nickname Mr. Beast, who went viral a couple years ago, and he has earned $54 million from his YouTube channel just making content. I remember there were two high school students in my last congregation who were desperately trying to go viral on TikTok. They have not yet gone viral on TikTok. They're still trying, I imagine. Um, that we have this desire, we have this desire to be out front, we have this desire for power and status and position. And Jesus doesn't deny 
that. He doesn't just deny that, tell people to get rid of that desire. He just flips it upside down. He inverts it. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you must become like a servant. If you want to be first, then you must become slave of all. The scholar Daniel Kirk talks about how this happens a lot in the Gospel of Mark. There's this inverting, this flipping upside down of the power structures. So, for example, after Jesus makes that second prediction of his death and the disciples begin to squabble with each other about who's the greatest, Jesus takes a little child and says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you must become like a little child. Which sounds sentimental and sweet to us because that's the way we think about children as innocent and who kids say the darndest things, right? Until you realize that within Jesus' culture, children were at the very bottom of the social hierarchy. In a society that had the institution of slavery and was patriarchal, children were even below women and slaves. If you want to be the greatest, Jesus says, then you become the greatest by becoming the least of these, our sisters and brothers. We find greatness, Jesus says, not in moving upwards, but in going downwards. We find greatness not in how we elevate ourselves, but how we lower ourselves. We find greatness in the hands of the poor reaching out for their daily bread. We find greatness in, the, in, the, in those who are seeking justice. We find greatness in the ways that we love, those who nobody loves. We find greatness, Jesus says, by moving downwards. That the kingdom of God is upside down. It is about downward mobility. It's about the ways that you serve, the ways that you give your life away. Here again is this talk about the cross that Jesus said to us last week that we have to take up our cross and follow him. Now, talk about the cross does not have to indicate that we have to be led to martyrdom. The cross is about self-denial, one scholar says. It's about the ways that we deny our own desires for power and status and privilege and move downwards to find our lives in connection with those who are called the least of these, our sisters and brothers. I've shared with you all before that one of the most important experiences of my life was working among those who experienced homelessness um, in, in downtown Philadelphia, an area called Center City. I worked as an intern for two semesters at a place called Broad Street Ministry. Um, it was a it's a church and a social service agency, at least it was. The church is now gone, one of the victims of the pandemic, which actually makes me really sad. Um, but I got to be a, a seminary intern there for uh, a couple of semesters, working among some of the most, um, some of most vulnerable people in that part of the city. Um, and really, for me, this was a downward journey. I grew up in a fairly affluent suburb north of Chicago, at that time of my life, I was living in Princeton, New Jersey, in subsidized student housing, one of the most upscale places I'd ever lived. Um, but then every week on Wednesdays and Sundays, I would head down to Center City to work among those who were experiencing uh, homelessness. And when I think about that experience, I think about the effect that others had on me, and not so much the effect I had on other people. I don't know what effect I had on other people. I, I know the effect that they had on me. Um, and so I would go down on Wednesdays, and my assignment for my internship was during the mealtime, when you'd have a couple hundred guests in the, in the sanctuary eating their meal, uh, my, my job was to go and to sit at the table with the people who were eating and to offer pastoral care, to sit there and share the meal with them, which if you know me, you know that I loved having an internship responsibility being eating with other people. And let me say, too, that Broad Street would employ a chef who would make actual, like, gourmet food. It was amazing. 
And so I would sit at these tables and, and sort of the boundary between me as someone with power and privilege and those who did not have it was, was not erased completely. At the end of the day, I still went back home to Princeton, New Jersey, and those guests went back to under an overpass or a park bench or a shelter or something like that. But, but at least for a little while, it was less visible. But I sat at these tables and I got to, to know these guests. I got to know their stories you know, I heard stories of people who had really good careers but then lost their jobs and ended up on the streets, or people who struggled with mental illness, all sorts of different stories. And I got to know the, these individuals. And I remember driving home one day, getting ready to get on the interstate, go back to New Jersey, and, and I noticed over walking on the sidewalk a woman who was, uh, was obviously homeless. Then I realized I had just eaten dinner with her. And I knew her name, that she wasn't someone beyond a label, someone beyond a category to me. And when I think about the kingdom of God, when Jesus talks about it, I think still about sitting around those tables with people, this place where the power structures were leveled out at least a little bit for a moment in time, even in, in small ways. And I remember, too, a woman I met there. Uh, her name was Sandy, and she was, uh, she was also experiencing homelessness um, she had a bag of her belongings she'd bring everywhere she went, which was common among folks who were there. She was living in a shelter, and um, she was also very Pentecostal, and she would come to our church services, which were kind of quasi-Presbyterian, and she'd dance in the aisles, which was unusual for Presbyterians to see, but she had a little bit of flair to the service, right? Um, Sandy regularly attended the Bible study that I hosted on Wednesday nights, and um, it was my practice then, it's my practice now, um, well, before I get to that. And then I remember, um, I remember one day I had gotten word right before I had gone down to Broad Street that my grandmother had passed away. Um, I still went down, but then I, as we were, funeral preparations were being made, the funeral was a couple days away, so I needed to get home and to book a flight and to head back home for the funeral. And so I told Sandy and some of the other regular attenders that um, I wasn't going to be there that Wednesday. I, needed, I told her what was going on, and so I left, went home for the funeral, came back the next day, and it's my practice, whenever I do Bible study, to start with prayers. my practice then, it's my practice now. And uh, before I started to pray, Sandy interrupted me and she said, Pastor, can I pray for us? And I was a little hesitant. I said, I'm not sure what a Pentecostal was, how they were going to pray. But um, I said, sure, you can pray. And so she started to pray. And as she prayed, she prayed for me and for my family and for the grief that we were experiencing. And at first, my reaction was, wait, you're praying for me? I should be praying for you. You're experiencing homelessness. You have a bag of your belongings you bring everywhere. But of course, I was being arrogant. And once I could let that arrogance go, I received this as a gift, that she had flipped the power dynamics, the power structure on me, that no longer was I the seminary student who was one in the position of offering prayer, but she was one offering it to me. We all want to be great. We all have the drum major instinct. But what Jesus says is that the path to greatness is downward mobility. That the kingdom of God is always upside down. It's always flipped on its head. We find the kingdom of God by moving downward. We find it among those who are poor or homeless. We find it among those who are seeking justice in the world around us. We find it in those moments where those who are deprived of their power have something to offer to us. The kingdom of God is all about moving downwards. We all want to be great. We all want to do something amazing with our lives. 
So let that greatness be revealed in the ways that we show love to those that nobody loves. Let it be revealed in the ways that we move downwards to help the poor who are reaching out for their daily bread. Let it be found in the ways that we seek justice for those who are oppressed. We find the kingdom of God, not up, but down. We find our greatness revealed in the ways that we serve, in the ways that we become the least of all. Thanks be to God. Amen.